and now to introduce our very special guest. And uh, we really want to welcome everybody to what promises to be an enlightening and uplifting time. We have as our guest today, John Amici, whose size is matched by the courage and perseverance he has demonstrated since childhood. An ability to overcome obstacles, not only to succeed himself, but crucially to encourage and pave the way for so many others that they may attain their goals. He practices his belief in diversity and inclusiveness. And he does it because John knows that the most important thing a leader can do is to lead by example, to be a role model. Not only was he an amazingly successful player in the NBA for five seasons, he paved the way for gay and lesbian athletes in sports in February 2007 by becoming the first NBA player to come out publicly as a gay man. And since that time, he's worked tirelessly to move sport from spectacle to agent of social change. His personal history and the values by which he has lived his life are contained in his best-selling autobiography, Man in the Middle. John knows that all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, place of birth, socioeconomic status, should be able to contribute to multi-sport games shaping the next generation of our leaders. He's put his beliefs into practice as a member of the London 2012 Games Diversity Board. John was born this side of the Atlantic in Boston, but his early schooling took place in Stockport, England. He came back to America for high school and then attended Penn State where he was a two-time first-team academic all-star American selection. Apparently that's good. It was while he attended it was while he attended Penn State that he became involved in helping and mentoring area youth. These early beginnings working with young people have continued to this day. Two of his many projects deserve particular mention. He's the senior fellow at the Center for Emotional Literacy and Personal Development at the University of Lancashire and he's involved with the ABC Foundation in Manchester, which encourages all children to become involved in sports by building accessible sports facilities. He was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2011 for his service to sport and the volunteer sector in the United Kingdom. Athlete, social activist, psychologist, best-selling actor, uh, best-selling author, <laughs> Well, maybe actor, you'll, you'll add actor, but best-selling author, John Amici, the Canadian Club Podium, Canada's Podium of Record is yours. It's all tremendously, this is a very low podium. Um, <laughs> Yes, one size does not fit all. There we go. Um, all right, I'm distracted by my low podium now. Uh, this is hopefully going to be an incredibly weird experience for you, which is, uh, I think, good. Uh, hopefully it'll be a little bit uncomfortable, which I think is good. Uh, I think part of, I don't believe in fate much um, at all, but I, I do think that part of 
the benefit of being massive is that I can say stuff that other people can't get away with. And so I take advantage of that, and I will do that today a little bit. Enough about me has already been said, but I do think it's important that you know that uh, I am no bleeding heart. I'm not one of these people who believes in diversity because, you know, can't we all just get along and I want to hold hands and sing Come By Our Round of Fire somewhere. Uh, that is not why I'm interested in diversity. It's not why I'm interested in sport living up to its promise. Uh, I'm interested in people being better. Uh, that's a lie, actually. I'm interested in people being the best. And so for me, diversity uh, fits into that mold. It's about creating an equality of opportunity that isn't just good for the individual, but instead creates this, our organization suddenly having a higher caliber of people. I don't know about you, but I think it is time that we started doing better, not in Canada necessarily, but just around the Western world especially. Uh, I'm tired of looking at organizations that I work with and thinking, my God, you are wildly underqualified for the job that you have. Why does somebody better not have your job? And realizing, oh, it's because you're mates with somebody. You went to the Bullingdon Club, and therefore you're part of a little clique that will ensure your underqualified presence forever. <laughs> so there we go. This is why I don't get invited back. <laughs> I did want to tell you a few things about me, which I think would perhaps be uh, pertinent. Uh, people often look at me and imagine that I'm a basketball player. And I've never thought that I was a basketball player. I played basketball for a while, but even early on I recognized that I had just a ridiculous job, um, that I put a ball in a hole for a living. I mean, when you, when you let that settle for a while, I mean, that is just one of the dumbest things in the world. <laughs> I, at a speech this morning I gave, there was a man outside uh, haplessly throwing a piece of rubbish into the, the bin, and I commented that I got paid a lot of money for doing that, <laughs> putting a small ball into a hole. However, I wanted to be a psychologist long before that. The ideas of basketball hit me. I, I started playing basketball when I was 17 years old in England. Uh, prior to that point, I was the fat kid who hid in the corner of the library and was happy for it. I was all about Hardy Boys books and Asimov, even though every Hardy Boys book is the same, and I know that. <laughs> and then suddenly, uh, I, I was approached by a man on, on Market Street, which is the main shopping street of Manchester, and he came up to me and said, why don't you play basketball? I had a pasty in my hand at the time. Do you know pasties here? Good. Yeah, just English enough. Good. I had a pasty in my hand at the time, flakes of it around my mouth, and, and this guy said, why don't you try basketball? And I don't know why I said yes. To this day, I don't know why I said yes. But I know why I continued. Six weeks later, I was shown into this gym. I walked up to the front door of this community center in Cholton, near where I live, and I ducked my head through the door and walked in, and the place just went silent. You know, like in those films where the ball is bouncing and then it's just bounce, 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 bounce. And then all of a sudden people started rushing up to me like, we, he's got to be on our team. And I, I tried to tell them, you realize, of course, I'm terrible. I've never played this sport. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with that. But they wanted me on their team. And that's why I continued to play. Because my experience prior to that was two things. Uh, one, uh, the terrified screams of people around me and the other, the unqualified laughter of people around me. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that is the number one and two response to me when I walk around. If it's during the day, the responses are mostly pointing and laughing. If it's at night, the responses are normally pointing and screaming and running. <laughs> uh, 
And as you can imagine, as a 16-year-old, it's a little bit of a dent on the ego, if that's your daily routine, walking out of the pasty shop, somebody screaming, laughing, running off. So all of a sudden, I'm in this environment where everybody wished they were like me. People were actually coming up to me and saying, I wish I was more of a freak like you. And I thought, this is amazing. This, is, this must be what sport is all about, this amazing thing where you can just grow and be amazing and brilliant. The interesting part is that, uh, you know, as I went through my career, I suddenly realized that that only accounted uh, as true in certain demographic areas. It's really cool to be six foot nine and black in sport. It's actually one of the few places where being six foot nine and black is a positive. But it's not so cool if you then add gay into that equation. One, because it makes people's minds explode. As a, as a lovely lady uh, in New York once told me after I had spoken there, she came up to me and gave me that handshake, the one that, you know, the one that lasts a little too long and two-handed, and if I hold on, stop it. I'm <laughs> uh, and she said to me, this is, this is really good what you've done. And I said, thank you, I really appreciate that. She said, no, you see, because before I met you, I didn't realize black people could be gay. <laughs> and before you're wondering, this was not in 1897. <laughs> this was in 2007, in New York, in the East Village. So she may have been a little myopic, but anyway. So I'm supposed to talk about, I borrowed this from that table on the far end, thank you. Uh, sport as a leader and a, a, a lever for social change. I've been a little disappointed in sport. Nope, strike that. Devastated by the fact that sport is one of the few industries left that still makes radical, bold, unregulated promises that it has no hope whatsoever of fulfilling. I am tired of it. It is unbelievable to me that we still have an organization out there that makes the same kind of promises that Lehman Brothers and Fannie Mae made and delivers about as well. There has never been an Olympic Games that has uh, had any kind of sustainable bump in participation levels. Isn't that amazing, given the amount of money that goes into these things? The number of people in expensive cars and nice blazers that get to sit on the very sidelines, the number of kings and queens and prime ministers and other people who show up. Isn't it amazing that given that, after these games go, things just fizzle in terms of participation? And I think we can do better. So before, I mean, this will sound like a bit of a downer, but there's, there's good stuff coming, I promise. Um, I would say this, I'm, I'm not a sports fan. The last football game, people keep on asking me because I'm from Manchester, are you City, are you United? Neither, don't care. Um, the last football game I went to was in 1976. Uh, I was six. No, I shouldn't have said that. I was three. Uh, and I was taken by my babysitter's boyfriend, and they forced me to go. Even then, I was rebelling against it. So I'm not a fan. So I'm not really that interested in sport per se, but what I am interested in is as I look around the world, there is something about really powerful people and really powerful entities and the way they interact with people who aren't powerful that is important to understand. And sport is one of those areas where some of the most important powerful people, let's face it, you, get, you start talking about the IOC, this is an organization that can make prime ministers and kings beg them, allegedly bribe them. So they are immensely powerful in the scheme of things. And what my concern with sport is the interaction of these types of powerful people with people without power.
because I think it's very telling. The reason I agreed to speak uh, with the Toronto 2015 people is because I finally felt like there was a bit of a breath of fresh air. I'm working with LOCOG because I had that same sense when I met with Paul Dighton six or seven years ago, six years ago, and Seb Coe. I actually felt like, although some of the promises that had been made originally were wild and crazy, when it got down to it, we were making some very specific promises about ways we could deliver for the East End of London, the ways we could deliver for the young people in the area, the way we could really maximize the power of the games to make people do good stuff for young people. And I think we delivered on a lot of those small things, if not the big, bold, amazing stuff at the very beginning. And I saw that similar type of thing here with Toronto 2015, which is why I agreed to come and talk to them. I, I do see that they believe that sport and these games and any major event like this must deliver more than just medals and claps. We've got to do more than that with sport, and I want to help them do that if possible. I also want to convince you as a wider audience that if we are to use sport as a leader and a lever for change, we have to understand what sport is in the first place. This is going to be uncomfortable for those of you who are sports fans because you're just not going to like to hear this. But understand that the place that this comes from is my definite geek Asimov side. This comes from a review of the literature on the power of sport, which doesn't come across very well. If I was a good scientist, I would say it was the evidence for the power of sport is equivocal at best. So I think we have to start examining some of the myths around sport to see how we can change it and use it. A lot of people think sports is naturally inclusive. This is one I get all the time. Anybody can play sport, right? Uh, when I hear this, I then encourage people to think back. Think back to when you were eight or nine or 10 and you were in the playground. Think back at the people who played in the playground and the people who hid in the playground. There's a certain type of person for whom sport is very attractive. Those early developers in primary and secondary school. Yeah, sport's great for you. You boys who, want to, who were early developers, it's really great for you. Girls who are good at sport, to a point, but you beat a boy and then all of a sudden we go start asking questions about you because you're the wrong kind of girl then. And anybody who's a little bit different, if you're a bookworm like me or a fat kid like me or a gay kid like me, all of us, oh, that combination is pretty deadly actually on a sports field. <laughs> it's probably why I picked a non-collision sport. But you suddenly realize when you look at this, even at the very beginning, sport is, is by definition exclusionary. When you look at the upper echelons, yes, there is the meritocracy side of being good enough to make a team, but you look at the people who administer sport, and I'm always interested with the way that playing sport is a meritocracy and that you have to be a certain level of good to be there. But once you get beyond playing into administration, a lot of times it doesn't seem like you have to be that good. It seems like you have to know the right people. And you can just say some pretty outrageous stuff and still stick around. So we've got to recognize this if we really want to use sport. The other thing is, sport, people like to talk about sport like it's magic. And I don't believe in magic. I'll qualify that later. Sport is not magic. No sport is more magic than any other. Sport does not teach these magical tangential lessons of teamwork, respect, uh, I don't know, other ones. All these things, that, it doesn't do that. You can use sport to do those things, but we do, it doesn't do it on its own. It's not magic. Sometimes you hear people talk about sport and you imagine that the 
uh, at the Toronto, I don't know what the football team here is called. There you go, FC, that's simple enough. You know, people would believe that simply inhaling the smell of grass as the ball rolls over the field will somehow make fat children thin. Sport tries to make you believe that the sound of a basketball swishing through the net will make indolent children active. Sport tries to make you believe that the mere act of observing sport, watching sport, will somehow make communities that have had great animus over the years somehow forget those troubles and come together. It's nonsense. It doesn't do those things. But we can make it do some of those things if we really want to. The other thing I'll say before I get slightly more positive is that we have to understand what sport's nature is when we leave it alone. When you leave sport unbridled, if you leave a group of nine-year-olds playing sport on their own without a coach, if you come back, not two hours later, but maybe after allowing them to play a couple of hours every day for six weeks or so, you'll walk into that gym or onto that field and it will look like Lord of the Flies. And Piggy will be decapitated over in the corner. <laughs> Sport is inherently anti-intellectual. The only place that sport embraces science is in, in sport therapy. These teams will send their players off to Germany to sit in a hyperbaric chamber without knowing what a hyperbaric chamber is or how it works to get them be uh, better quickly. But when it comes to the social emotional side of stuff, oh no, boys don't cry. Oh no, he needs to suck it up. He, oh no, he's got to man up. Sport is anti-intellectual, it's emotionally illiterate. I watch sometimes, and if there's a benefit that events like 2015, events like the Olympics could bring, it would be in educating coaches as well, I would say. Because I watch sometimes coaches on the sideline and, and I just, I'm amazed by it. The context of sport has created that you can watch a coach on the sideline inches, his face inches away from a nine-year-old girl so close that his hot breath and spittle is hitting her face as he's explaining what she's done wrong. And you'll see parents along the sideline just nodding like, oh yeah, she should know better. Yeah. And then I often go up to that parent and I say, imagine that was your, imagine that was your daughter's French teacher. You would have tackled him, tackled him to the ground and pummeled him into little pieces if he spoke to your child like that in French class or in maths class or anywhere else outside of the sporting realm. But with sport sometimes left unfettered, it gets ugly. Sport has in some cases embraced the idea that bigotry is bad. The problem is it's decided that some kind of bigotry are important, race, especially black people, and sometimes aren't important, gay people, because we all know no gay people play sports. There used to be one in basketball, but now he does something else. <laughs> so uh, it's a really destructive thing. And actually, sport has, has entered into this contract where actually they haven't really tried to change themselves. They've just tried to change the way it's seen. So bananas being thrown on football field televisually isn't good for the sponsors. So they've done something about that. But have they actually uh, done anything better? Not, not for the most case. All right, time to move on from this. I don't want you to deter you from sport. I want to encourage you to get more involved. 
I want you to use the expertises that you bring from your different environments. The corporate world is light years ahead of sport. It has lessons it can and must teach to sport. Some of it is going to be in nice ways, and some of it's going to be in other ways where you say, look, this is what we stand for as an organization. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a bank or, or a biopharmaceutical company or anybody else or a sports brand. This is what we stand for, and we can't align ourselves with organizations, international federations, and sports that do not stand for what we stand for. We have to make people understand that they have to do more. We need to understand that sport will teach what we make it teach and nothing else. In that end, uh, I read a really good study once. It had the best title of any study I've ever read. It was called Teaching Swimming, colon, Issues Beyond Drowning. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's brilliant. It had nothing to do with what I was studying at the time, but how can you pass up a title like that? Teaching Swimming, colon, Issues Beyond Drowning. So I've got to read this. It was done by the government of New South Wales. They had this problem. They've got a lot of coastline. They had a lot of young people, primary school age kids, getting, going out swimming, getting sucked out to sea, and either drowning because they couldn't stay afloat long enough to be rescued by um, hot lifeguards, or they were pulled out to sea and chomped on by sharks because they couldn't doggy paddle their way back to shore. It was truly tragic the way they described it. And they said, we've got to do something about this. We're going to put it into a program. We're going to put in a program that will stop this from happening. They put in a program. I'm sure it took many, many years. They did a longitudinal study. 10 years, 15 years later, they looked, and the numbers were amazing. It had dropped off the cliff. There were practically no children being sucked out to sea anymore. This program was in every single primary school. No children being sucked out to sea, very few anyway, very few being chomped on by sharks. And Yet they looked again and they were like, this is problematic. We spend all this money and we're the worst uh, competition swimming state in Australia. How is this possible? We've got a groundbreaking program in our schools teaching our children to swim and yet we're not producing any more Phelps or torpedoes or elite swimmers. Why are, we, why are we ranking so low? So they did this study teaching swimming issues beyond drowning and you know what they found? They put in a program into schools that was designed to stop children from drowning. So you know what the program did? It stopped children from drowning. It didn't. It taught children to doggy paddle furiously. Do not use that picture anywhere. Um, it taught children to doggy paddle furiously. It taught them to, to stay afloat. It taught them some basic skills to help them get back to shore. But what it didn't do is teach them how to become elite swimmers. The reason I mention this, the reason it's important is because in 2015, the Olympics, 2012, we are trying to put in programs, and especially for local, we've been very, because I've been working with them, we've been very specific about what the outcomes we want, operationally defined outcomes, is the kind of ugly terminology we use. We want very specific. We want this program to do this very specific thing. If it does something else positive, that's a bonus. But the way sport operates right now is that it expects that you roll the ball out amongst kids. And, and this really happens. They do this in, in uh, parts of Israel and Palestine. They roll a ball out and have some Palestinian kids play against some Israeli kids, and that's going to solve the problem. You know, it's a war that's been going on for thousands of years, but that's going to solve the problem. They did it in Northern Ireland. Oh, let's have... Uh, Protestants and Catholics play together, because that's, you know, 
We have to make sure that we're going to use this sport. If we want it to lead, we have to teach it how. We're going to have, sport is like this massive super tanker. Uh, we have to empty it out of all the bad stuff, scrub it out, and then fill it with exactly what we want. I have a center in Manchester that um, we have about 3,000 kids a week going through our doors now. And we win everything in basketball. Uh, I'm also aware that in basketball in England, that's not really a very impressive feat. Uh, we're the best of the worst, let's put it that way. But our, our little, the thing we say, our coaches have really bought into, is that we don't want to produce athletes. We're not interested in that. We, we have sent 40 kids over to America over the last 10 years, and that's great. The vast majority of our kids won't go anywhere. In fact, if you ask a kid from my center what are the chances of making it to play professionally, they'll tell you I've got more chance of being hit by a meteor. Because that's what we tell them, because that's the truth. I also add, I did it, and I'm a terrible athlete. Um, and so if I can do it, it can be done, but more chance of being hit by a meteor. So what we say there is that our goal for the young people there is we want to produce emotionally literate, intellectually curious young people who can communicate with their peers and also with authority figures. And we want that because the science tells us that people who have those characteristics do well. Those are the people that when they get in front of somebody for an interview, the interviewer is refreshed. And those of you who have interviewed people will know what I'm talking about. You almost breathe a sigh of relief. Oh my God, I can talk to you and it's not like pulling teeth. You can have the job just because you don't make my life painful. <laughs> and as sad as that is, that is a lot of the truth. Emotionally literate young people are less likely to be volatile, less likely to act out, less likely to be truant, less likely to, to drop out of school, less likely to be bullies. And this is not conjecture. We have science to back this up. If we could integrate some of those principles into sport, imagine what we could do. Especially when you consider that it is within sport that we have some of the most intellectually I can't think of a nice way of saying it. So I won't say it. We have some people who believe that their job really, even though they're surrounded by 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 18-year-olds, they really think that their whole job of being around those young people is to teach them how to kick a football or throw a basketball or hit a puck. There you go. I mean, they really think that. And I think that's deadly. There's an opportunity with sport to have even with some of these characteristics in the people who are on the coal face, some of these characteristics with the people who organize the programs, emotional literacy, bit of intellectual stimulation, an idea that they take care of the holistic person, not just the athlete. Imagine the difference that would make. Imagine if we asked the same of these people that we ask of our school teachers. It's been a long time since a school teacher can get away with saying, no, not my job, I'm just here to teach him how to do algebra. It's been a long time since, we've been able, since teachers have been able to get away with that. But we let sports coaches get away with it. We let sports in general get away with it. And we can do more. So um, I've got 56 seconds. Um, as I always say, I'm 6'9", and nobody's going to pull me from the podium. So, I'm just going to keep going for a second. This is for you. This is the appeal I would make to you who are here, you who are watching. I hope you recognize that you are disproportionately powerful. Throw out any thought from your head right now that you are not because you are. 
You are in a room in a very nice hotel, a room that's so nice that I can't tell whether we're in Canada or Italy or England. And you just had nice salmon and someone served us coffee out of pots. You are disproportionately powerful. There is a responsibility that comes with being big. I have known this since I was eight, because when I was eight, people thought I was 16. There is a power that comes with being massive. Sport suffers from the delusion that on the one hand it's massively powerful, but on the other hand it has no responsibility. And I want us to encourage, to, to insinuate, insinuate ourselves into sports and let them know that that's not enough. I'm massive. I'm aware of it. I don't like it all the time. When I was 16, I wish there was a button on the back of my head I could press and become five foot eight. Didn't work. But being big comes with responsibility. I know when I walk through this place, when I was in the reception out there or walking through any room, I know that I can't just act any way I want to. I imagine as I walk, there's a little cylinder around me. Don't use any of those pictures either. There's a little cylinder around me. Because I know if someone comes up to me and says, where's such and such? And I go, oh, it's over there. I know if there's somebody who stood here, they will die. <laughs> That's the thing about being big. When you're big, you don't have to intentionally, intentionally seek to do harm. You can do harm accidentally. Flourish of the hand, dancing to the YMCA. You can decapitate someone. I could decapitate someone. You may not be, well, most of you aren't as big physically as me, but metaphorically, some of you are massive. Sport is that same type of entity, and we have to use our size to teach sport that it must use its size more responsibly to let them know that it's not okay for certain people to feel excluded from sport, marginalized and pushed away from it. It's not okay for sport to, to act as if banter within the sports realm somehow was excused. We can do this. It's difficult for you, I know, because we grow up, especially in Canada and Britain, I know, with the idea that it's not really good to brag about being big especially when it's metaphorical. But you've got to. You've got to break out of this habit you have of thinking that you're small. It's convenient, I recognize it, but being small has a real negative. I, I will tell you this as a large person. Small people, you, physically, have terrible spatial awareness. I don't know if you're aware of this, I'm aware of this. I don't know why it is exactly, but I think it's something to do with the fact that, I mean, I see it all the time, for example. When I walked through here, there were uh, two guys talking and blackberrying something and walking at the same time, and I saw them, and I was with uh, Naki, who was escorting me through, and I knew that if I didn't move, they would walk right into me. No spatial awareness at all. Didn't see me coming. Didn't see me coming. And I think it's because when you guys hit each other in real life, it goes something like, ha, 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 hit, oh, sorry, and then you walk off. So you think, oh, no harm, no foul. But you have to remember that metaphorically, you're me. Metaphorically, the way you look at somebody can transform the way they think about themselves.
Those of you who have children, I have grandchildren. Those of you who have children know that it can be just the way you look at them that transforms the way they think about themselves. Sport has been looking at a lot of people in that way that makes them feel marginalized, pushed out to the perimeter, unworthy, not special. And we have to remind sport that it's big. And the way we can do this is by getting involved using our expertise. Some of you work for organizations that have cutting edge, have done cutting edge work in terms of diversity, inclusion, in terms of mindfulness, knowing your surroundings, treating people with respect, getting the very best talent regardless of from what pool they come from. And we can teach those lessons to sport together. So before we do anything further, I would like to offer up this opportunity first to see who has the first question. Don't be frightened. I'm not going to run. As I walked up here, I suddenly realized how high this stage was. When I was younger, it didn't seem so, but now it does. John, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Jennifer Sloan, a director of the Canadian Club. Um, life lessons. Um, I grew up as a competitive swimmer. You won a race, you lost a race. You were in school, you were on a team, you won, you came second, third, fourth. Nowadays, I look around and I see kids playing sport. Everybody wins. Everyone gets a medal. And to me, that's not the real world. And so do you have any views in that regard about the way where kids are playing sports these days and everyone seems to do well, everyone wins? Yes. I mean, I, I think creating a bubble around young people that is not even remotely akin to reality is always dangerous. Um, there, are, there is an age, I think, where that's unimportant, where we're winning and losing is unimportant. But the age is creeping down and down every year. The reason, I think, I, the reason I'm disappointed with this whole everybody wins perspective is because I believe it's a substitute for actually coaching. I think lazy coaches who don't want to have to engage in teaching the lessons of winning and losing find it easier to just say, hey, everyone gets a rosette. Well done. Instead of being able to console your group of uh, 12, eight-year-olds who've come second in a competition they thought they were going to come first in, encouraging them to shake hands with the team that won, showing them how this experience, whilst unpleasant, will be one that could be fortifying if we use it in the right way. If we conjure this image and this feeling that we hold right now, the next time we come to a crucial moment, perhaps this will be something that steals us and helps us to do the right thing at the right time and win. And that three or four sentence diatribe is too much effort for some people in sport. And so instead of delivering that, instead of putting an arm on the shoulder of a crying child and saying, we can do better. I understand how you feel. This is awful. Right now it feels like your world's fallen apart, but I can promise you it will get better. Instead of doing that, they slap a rosette on the chest. That's what I think is devastating about this rule. The rule is silly, especially for any child who's over the age of 12. Because at the age of 12, you know, most countries have started some kind of standardized testing and you suddenly realize, yeah, you don't get a rosette for that. David Langan, Outsport Toronto, director. Uh, what's been the biggest barrier that you faced with the London Games in establishing that legacy of sport that you want to achieve? Uh, 
I suppose the biggest barrier for, for 2012, at least from my perspective, has been trying to get us to define ways that we can win with legacy. These bold statements, unregulated statements, you know, you know, you can put in a dollar and in five years you'll, you'll have a million, uh, is the magnitude of, of claim we make around the games. And I think I came on board, uh, Dame, uh, sorry, Baroness, she'll have me killed, uh, Baroness Tani Gray Thompson, who's a friend of mine, uh, came on board and all of a sudden she was like, right, uh, let's do measurable. I mean, let's face it, sport is one of those areas where it's just completely not akin to business because there's no way in business you could get away as a director of saying, yeah, uh, at your end of you know, annual report time, well, uh, yeah, we're going to do somewhat better than last year and not quite as good as I would have hoped. Thank you. You just don't get, but sport does that all the time. So I think the, the, the barrier we've had is trying to get people from not making these massive lofty uh, promises that look good on the front of tabloids and then look devastating on the front of tabloids when they're not delivered, but instead trying to educate people about very small, specific steps for very discrete groups of people that have been progress and positive and making people understand this, you know, success by a thousand cuts is how you do it rather than one big sweep. Hi, Lee Rose Merkler with the Mississauga Youth Games. Thank you so much for the insight and uh, incredible laughs that you've provided this, uh, this afternoon. But I wanted to ask about uh, you being as an out, candidate, uh, out um, athlete. Uh, how do you outreach to young LGBT um, athletes uh, in your programs in, in the UK and what you're doing with the London Olympics? Um, the, 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 the group, the clique of, of out athletes, especially on the male side, is very small. We all know each other. We have a, I mentioned this earlier, we have like a, a bat phone that we can all call and, and talk to each other. Because uh, there's only like four of us uh, in the world. Um, I believe I'm the only black one, actually. There's one Pacific Islander. Yeah. So we're a small group. Well, certainly in my center, it, it's not hard for, for me to kind of influence what goes on there because essentially I'm the biggest gayest thing in the world. Um, I mean that in the nicest possible way, but I mean, seriously, how many times do you see a 6'9", reasonably heavy uh, gay person walking around? Not a lot. So I'm, I'm an unmistakable beacon. Uh, and, but our, our kids have really embraced it at my center. They, they've stopped thinking in such discrete terms about diversity and they just understand, because we've made a real effort in this area, that difference helps. That different perspectives bring something new to the table, even if it is something intangible. And our kids have started to understand that. It's not just a question of, can this player, because he's black and jumps higher or something, uh, help us win? It's a question of how this person behaves in the locker room. Is there some part of their personality that brings to us something we're lacking? And certainly in terms of sexuality, that's really been embraced. We don't have a huge number of out kids, um, you know, necessarily kids who go, walk around wearing pride banners or anything else. But what I do think is telling that when Manchester Pride comes around, the clamor of our under-18s men's team, which is bar one, an entirely straight team, to get tickets for Pride is amazing. Because they've realized that this is the best party in town and that people are people and that there's something fun about this that they can't have when they go to regular clubs other places. What, we had a new kid who came into our center and, and said something that inappropriate. He said something, something was gay. 
I'm always amazed how inanimate objects are gay. Ah, um, oh, this basketball's gay. Really? I mean, I need to know how that works. Um, and then one of our kids say, we don't, we don't say that here. That's, that's, that's not who we are. That's just, that's weird. And then walked off. Amazing deterrent. If you're 16 and that's the response you get, it wasn't over the top, it wasn't huge fights, it wasn't grabbing the shirts and fisticuffs, it was just like, ooh, you are other. That is, not, that is not who we are. And then a few weeks later, this kid was like, he kind of got it, he understood, apologized, and was, he came back and said, so what's the deal with, with John? I'm not there all the time, clearly, because I'm, I'm all over the place instead, but what's the deal with John? I don't get it, why do you guys want to go to Pride? They said, well, firstly, it's amazing, but don't you know, he's like king of the gays. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a straight 18-year-old boy saying that. And I just think there's real progress when that happens because it's so clear that for him, I mean, he was incredulous that he was having to have this conversation. And I think that's the way we make progress. It's a good question. I probably should have mentioned this earlier if I was more organized. It's a good question. Within the sporting realm, people are often asking the question, why is this important? They always say things like, who you sleep with, like being gay is about that. If they knew me, it's like, no, that's not what it's about, sadly. Um, who you sleep with is not important because you're an athlete. And the thing is, for businesses, and I, I believe this is the reason that most business gets diversity, because it's not the 80s anymore, the late 80s, the 90s. It's not that time anymore where you could be average and win. It's not that time when you could operate at 76%, and as long as everybody chugged along at 76%, you'd meet your targets for profit, you'd meet your targets for shareholders, you'd meet your targets for expansion, and everything would be fine. No, the stuff has hit the fan. And nowadays, if you have departments of your organizations not operating at 99.99%, then you're screwed. In sports, that is exactly the same. You know, we know. As if you've played sport, you know. If you come to your game, if you come to your event, and you are anything less than 100%, you will lose because there is someone else better just waiting. So the reason that diversity is important, the reason that we have to send this message, this is the message I think we need to send to help, is that winning medals, that, that winning contracts, that beating your competitors is about uh, that razor's edge. It's about reaching that 100%. And if you exist in an environment, or if you foster an environment in your workplaces, in your studios, in your uh, gyms and fields and whatever else, where people are afraid 
where people feel they must hide a percentage of themselves, then they will never have all their energy available. People have a finite amount of psychic energy, right? And I don't mean that in a kind of Dionne Warwick kind of way. I mean that in a scientific way. We've got a finite amount of energy in our cells, especially brain energy. And the experience I had when I played was that all the time that I played, I don't know what the figure was exactly, but somewhere between 2 and 5% of my energy was always unavailable for free throws. It was always unavailable for jump shots. It was unavailable for defense. It was unavailable for sprinting and running. It was unavailable for lifting. It was unavailable for my sport. Because that 2 to 5% was the 2 to 5% of myself that protected my ego from the comments of my teammates. It, that was the 2 to 5% of myself that allowed me to bite my lip when the guy, the drunk guy, the drunk fat guy who never played sport was calling me a faggot from the sidelines. That 2 to 5% was unavailable at all times. And I know I could have been a better player if that had been available. I can think of specific times, one of them here in Toronto, where with Orlando when I was playing really well and I just kicked the Raptors' ass the whole game. <laughs> Sorry, but it was true. And I came to the free throw line at the end and, and there was stuff going on around me and comments being made by opposing teams, by all kinds of stuff going on in the gym. Stuff that I know would not have been allowed to be said about black people. And I missed two free throws at the end of the game. It's not as simple as, you know, clearly that I could have focused more, I could have done something more, but the, my point is that diversity is important for organizations that want to operate on that edge. And in this day and age, we all must operate there. So if there's a message that we can use as big people, as we all are, disproportionately powerful people, former athlete or not, it is that. Diversity is not about fluff. It's not about the Benetton shot where we have a, a black person, a white person, a gay, a wheelchair user, and we all smile at the camera to put on the annual report. Diversity is about making sure that when it comes down to it, when those free throws must be made, when the medal must be won, when we've got to beat our competitor to the next contract or the next deadline, our people can use every single piece of resource they have to make it happen. Hopefully this has been a suitably weird experience for you, and I look forward to talking to you later. Thank you. John, I want to thank you for being with us today and for your inspirational message. Your struggles and your courage to fight for what you believe is a truly remarkable story. It is also important that we recognize that you did not stop when you retired from professional basketball. You kept going. To set an example for young people and adults to pursue their lives with strength and conviction. With your leadership and the example you have set, sport, especially multi-sport games, can take on a whole new dimension for society. Again, we thank you for all that you have done and for your message today. Thank you. Well, Gord, thank you very much. And um, John, thank you. Uh, 
I'd like to thank you today on behalf of everybody, as is uh, our custom, but I'd like to also thank you, especially on behalf of the GLB uh, community, many of whom are here today. Um, and as a member of that community, uh, I think I can speak for them in saying thank you to you and how different many of our lives would have been if we had a role model such as you when we were much younger than we, we now are. So you have for that our heartfelt thanks and the thanks of a generation yet to come. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's television program, which we broadcast on Rogers Television in the days to come. Continue to be grateful to uh, Rogers and to 680 News for their promotion of Canadian Club events. And I remind you, if you want tickets to our events in the weeks ahead, you can visit us at canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, lunch is now adjourned. Thanks for being with us today.